For June 1st, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River, where paradise lay. Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's cold train has hauled it away. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Energy Transition watchers are well aware that coal has fallen out of favor and that it appears to be in long-term decline. Coal's share of power generation in the U.S. has been falling steeply for a decade now, from powering half of our electricity in 2006 to just one-third today. And listeners of this show will also be well aware of how and why that happened, because we discussed it in the very first episode. But what has been the effect on coal country? How do people who come from families that have been mining coal for generations feel about the loss of the largest part of their economy? And what can they do instead of mining for coal, particularly in mountainous regions like West Virginia? And what is happening to the coal mining sector, to the once huge coal mining companies that have been going bankrupt, one after another, for the past several years? What will become of the liabilities they leave behind to their former employees, to the citizens of America, and to the environment? How much money has been lost in the sector? And will the damage to the companies be heavy enough to imperil the supply of coal for the future? These are difficult questions, and to answer them, you really need someone who knows these markets and the people of coal country intimately. So today we'll be speaking with Taylor Kierkendall, an energy reporter with S&P Global Market Intelligence, formerly SNL Energy, who has been writing some fantastic stuff on the demise of coal, and particularly how it affects the people in his home state of West Virginia. So let's bring Taylor into the conversation. Welcome, Taylor, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, it's, uh, it's great to be here. I'm always happy to talk about coal in the mountain state. So let's start with some basics for those listeners who may not be intimately familiar with coal. First, there are two main types of coal, metallurgical coal, usually referred to as met coal, which is typically a hard black or brown coal used in smelting, and thermal coal, which is usually a softer, less energy-dense type of coal that's used in power plants. So low-sulfur coal became a preferred alternative for power plants several decades ago because it helps reduce the sulfuric acid emissions that cause acid rain. So now you've done a lot of reporting over the past several years on the wave of bankruptcies that swept through the coal mining industry and kept a running total of those companies. Would you say those bankruptcies have most affected the miners of met coal or thermal coal? And why do you think it happened that way? Right. So among the top players in the industry, uh, what you really see is kind of a a diverse mix of you know, thermal and net coal in their portfolio. The idea there was to build diversity into the company and not put all their eggs in one basket. The problem is the bottom fell out of both of these baskets in the United States. 
you know, co-markets have always been cyclical. Companies have adapted to that in, you know, in the coal industry. But in a way, I think that they kind of anticipated some pressure on domestic coals and thermal coals. But they really didn't anticipate what was going to happen in the net coal market. You know, right now, we kind of have the benefit of looking back in hindsight. But, you know, if we pretend we're these coal executives you know, sitting in the boardrooms back in 2011, and we had, for an example, I, I spoke recently with Patriot Coal's former CEO, Ben Hatfield. He was there and kind of guided the company through both kind of being spun out of Peabody, but also into their bankruptcy. And they were kind of a premier metallurgical producer before they ended up filing bankruptcy twice. But, you know, he, what he told me was like, these weren't controversial moves. Nobody was saying when we were going to go out here and buy a bunch of Met Coal that was, that was that bad. And in fact, analysts were praising these companies for just putting a ton of money into, into Met Coal. I pulled up one of our old analyst reports from a group known, they're now known as Green Capital. But these analysts said, you know, this is a transformational deal for Alpha back when it was buying these huge Met Coal properties from Massey Energy. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, they were saying a combined company of these two were a must-own in the coal space. That's five years ago, 2011. Right. And obviously, Alpha is one of these companies that we you know, saw go bust recently. So we should probably talk for a minute about why that happened. I mean, just I should probably just let you talk and not speculate. But hey, it's my show. I'll speculate. So I'm going to say that the thermal coal market it fell on hard times because electricity demand has gone flat or has is actually falling in, in a lot of places throughout the OECD. And Met Coal went flat because basically China cooled off on its building boom. That was a, a major part of that. Everybody thought that China's growth was going to be endless back when they were making these bets. This was like around 2011. And um, these coal companies just, I don't think they could see the end in sight for, for um, Chinese growth. And that's, you know, where Met Coal is going to be for steel for new buildings and such. And the net coal profit margin was way higher. So these guys kind of got, you know, these kind of big eyes and started looking at all these properties. And that wouldn't have been such a big deal if they wouldn't have bought so much of this coal, you know, with debt. They went right. all in, bought billions of dollars just to go out and buy all these properties. And as I think a lot of listeners might know, Chinese growth kind of came to a halt. And so now while thermal coal, which they might have been able to prepare for because, you know, they've been dealing with like the cyclicality of that industry forever. I don't think they expected metallurgical coal to tank. And we saw that go from you know, well over $300 a ton on the premium coal benchmark settlement. I mean, that's right before all these companies bought these properties. And as soon as they bought them, I mean, they just, it just tanked. We're down, we uh, got down to about $81 per ton in the uh, last quarter settlement. But the most recent quarter settlement went up to $84 a ton. That's the first time it's gone up in, I think, 10 consecutive quarters. And again, these, these companies just were not expecting it. I mean, they had analysts cheering them on when they were buying all these, you know, they make these huge bets. And when I talk about these, these huge metallurgical coal bets, I'm mostly talking about Peabody Energy, Alpha Natural Resources, Walter Energy, Arch Coal. And really, if you look at the order these guys bought these metallurgical coal properties in, it's almost the same exact order that they went bankrupt. And we were kind of warning about this at S&P Global Market Intelligence back in early 2015 based on, you know, a lot of the work that was being done by BB&T Capital Markets analyst Mark Levin. He pointed out, you know, these companies in 2008, for example, Walter Energy, one of the first companies to go bankrupt on this, this problem, they had a, a debt to EBITDA revenue, um, ratio of about 3.4 times. Within six years, in 2014, that climbed up to 195 times. Whoa! And that's the most extreme example of all these companies. But I mean, you had the same problem. Arch went from 1.6 to 14.9. Alpha went from negative 0.3 to 11.2. Peabody, 1.3 to 7. I mean, basically, these people just way over levered and yep. betting that net coal was going to just go just go through boom times forever and it just didn't work out so what was coal selling for back in like 2005 when these deals were getting done 
the, the deals were, were being made closer to 2009 through 2011. Okay. And again, that was about $300 per ton. Or, so it fell from 300 bucks a ton-ish down to like 80-something a ton. Right. It's in the 80s, and it's been under 100 for the past couple quarters. I don't think you could have talked to anybody at the beginning of this slide that would have predicted it would have gone that low. In fact, I think one of the favorite games of coal companies at these conferences that we go to was who was going to call where the bottom is at. And I think everybody kind of jumped the gun um, every time. And it got to the point where recently analysts won't even call the bottom now. You know, We finally saw an uptick this quarter. I don't think people are predicting it to go much higher. Though. And not in the term. Wow. Okay. So um, among the companies that have gone bankrupt now, how many are on your running total and what kind of a dollar figure can we put on it? Right. So we, we've got around 50 bankruptcies, I believe, is where we're at right now. It's kind of hard to put a dollar figure on it because it depends on where you, where you valued the companies. But there's a couple of different numbers that I think really jump out. And as far as just trying to figure out you know, how big these bankruptcies are, for example, and as we published, find these in the show notes, the uh, 70% of the Powder River Basin is like you know, in bankruptcy. That's more than two-thirds. Even if you look into West Virginia, that's 26% of the production that's coming out of there in the last fourth quarter has been coming from companies that are, that are coming out of bankruptcy. So the combined market value of all the you know, major publicly traded U.S. coal companies, it's currently at about $4.59 billion as of our uh, last analysis, which was done around March. That's about 4.7% less than November, but more than 92% of its loss since April 2011. Wow. At that time, it was $62.5 billion. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's just an incredible loss. I mean... So just off the top of my head, quick math, that's what, $57 billion lost? Right. It's just incredible. I mean, like, you look at some of these companies and, you know, they kind of fell off the map. And if you really wanted to pull some more perspective into that, we're down to $4.59 billion total. $2.7 billion of that's Consol Energy. So that's roughly half or more, a lot more than half, actually. And that's mostly a natural gas company. So when you really look at just these coal assets, they're, they're worth almost like less than $2 billion off of at 62.5 billion in 2011. That's incredible. That is just incredible. And to come back a little bit to the thermal coal side of it, I mean, you know, there's obviously the low natural gas prices, as you know, is, is one of the biggest problems that coal faces right now. But I mean, there also are problems. The regulations are pushing this a little bit, less so the clean power plan, which is kind of the, you know, the one that gets the spotlight all the time. But things like the mercury and air toxic standard that just really puts a cap on, on where you can build a coal plant. But then, I mean, also, renewables are becoming cheap enough where they're actually creeping up in market share. So whereas, like, coal and natural gas are you know, competing back and forth every once in a while, and historically, even more so recently, natural gas is winning, renewables are creeping in there and not letting them have any of that ground back. They, these guys couldn't even catch a break with the weather. The past two winters have been so warm, and, and a lot of people kind of forget this as well. Like, coal almost had a resurgence back towards the end of 2014, and it, it even gained some ground. And it was mostly because of the polar vortex right. that created so much demand. And I think that uh, a lot of coal producers, and it's kind of sad to think about, like I guess, because you know they were really waiting around for these um, another polar vortex, basically. <laughs> and I think they were kind of counting on that. Yeah. And what's kind of sad because you do see this kind of almost like hoping for something to happen. I mean, because we have the same thing with net coal. One of the problems there is that the U.S. dollar is very strong right now, and that that means that other companies that have coal mines in other countries are able to compete a little bit easier if, they have a, if they're using a weaker currency. Sure. But also, one of the reasons that coal prices went up so high, and this is where I think it's reasonable for people to say, well, you know, these companies should have known what they were doing. I know I said earlier a lot of analysts weren't predicting this to happen. But where someone maybe should have noticed was that a lot of the reason that 
meant coal price went up so high was because there was flooding in Australia. I mean, kind of awkward, but I remember being at a, a conference one time and a guy says, you know, every day I wake up for another market disruption to happen in Australia so that we can get back in there. Mm. And I mean, that market disruption was a fatal flood. I think that everybody's kind of waiting for something like that to happen. And that's really short of that. It's, it's going to be hard to see a, a recovery in met coal. And, and I just think that it's hard to imagine them getting back much market share in the thermal market either. Well, okay. So I totally understand the points that you made here and that it is in fact sort of nuanced and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But I've been just trying to get, I don't know, some kind of number in my mind of how much damage has been done financially. And we could look at it from the perspective of what was the market capitalization of these 50 some odd companies back in 2007 versus now? Or we could look at it in terms of what would be the valuation of the coal reserves that were held by those companies in 2007 versus now? Or we could look at it from the perspective of the number that you already gave us is what was the actual selling price of coal then versus now. So, I mean, amongst these 50 some odd companies that have gone bankrupt, are we talking billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars? I mean, what are the losses? Oh, easily tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions in, in market value, okay. which again is kind of tricky. One of the things that we're seeing a lot this year and one of the reasons it's hard to pin down a number like this. So when you talk about kind of book value of a coal company, a lot of that's in reserves. A lot of the companies we saw this year, something we haven't seen in a while, they wrote down the value of those reserves, basically yeah. admitting to investors, you know what, we're never going to get any, any value out of this. Now, we do have numbers on market value, just kind of a side note here. We, we can get some of those market value numbers, and we do track that. It's kind of gotten just a little bit more difficult because basically the only company now left in the space that has kind of that multi-billion dollar market value is Consol Energy. And they're mostly a gas company at this point. They're not really right. you know, out there active in coal. But we're talking about billions and billions. We've either cut the value in these companies to half, if not three quarters by market value. Wow. So the big news a few days before we recorded this interview was that Peabody Energy, the world's largest coal company and the last of the standing coal companies, the big ones in the U.S., went bankrupt. So you reported that they slashed production by one-third at their North Antelope Rochelle mine in Wyoming, which is the largest coal mine in the United States, just months before the company declared bankruptcy. Does that seem a little strange to you? I mean, did they really not know just a few months earlier that they were actually headed into bankruptcy, and so they really thought that it wasn't too late to take action and try to curb the oversupply that they were contributing to? Or do you think it was actually a last-ditch cost-cutting measure, or, or what? Yeah, so, so keep in mind that you know the sharpest cuts really came in kind of the very last few months there. The production had already been decreasing a little bit there over the course of 2015. What a lot of people kind of leave out of this thing is, so everybody's dealing with this massive supply problem. They're kind of in it together, right? But all of Peabody's coal mines were cash flow positive in 2015. So even though there was a supply glut out there, Peabody was still able to make money off of it. And which hmm. is the problem that we have with a lot of these producers is some of these guys here have no incentive to pull up production if they're making a, still making money on the coal, I think that's a fair question to ask someone like Alpha, who is losing money on some of their coal, why not shut it in? But again, you got to keep in mind that you know a lot of these companies aren't going to behave in an altruistic way that makes the market work. They're going to try to figure out what works for them. And at North Antelope, that mine is so large and so productive that you really can outsell your competitor. So they were able to kind of keep this coal out there. I mean, keep in mind, this is, again, it doesn't get much cheaper than this mine. They've got a lot of mechanization. They're mostly using... A lot of machines, not a lot of coal miners. These coal seams are just huge. And like 
I think they're basically out there with, I think they have three drag lines and a, and a couple of like you know, truck and shovels out there that are just basically pushing out coal all year round. But then also remember that, you know, coal's really capital intensive. If you've got a mine open and you've put a lot of money into that mine already, and you've probably borrowed some of that the money to put that capital out there. And so sometimes even in oversupply, you know, particularly when you're, you're accountable to shareholders every quarter, but one of the easier ways to kind of continue to deliver value or to put off like, the cost of closing the mine is to sell your tons at a lower margin and hope that your competition goes away. And maybe you can get something like we mentioned before, like a polar vortex or maybe mm-hmm. natural gas spikes because of some supply problem. But, I mean, I don't think Peabody was really convinced at that point that they were going to be filing for bankruptcy. Keep in mind the, the data that we talked about where they cut a third was first quarter. So that was about a month ago. The company still has a pretty decent amount of liquidity. I mean, they I think they have $636 million right now, mostly in cash and liquidity. The problem there is that they had $2.1 billion December 31st, 2014. Um, within a year, they had $1.2 billion in liquidity by the end of 2015. So, you know, they've, they've burned almost half of their liquidity off. But then, like I said, they went from 1.2 billion to 36 million, just between the end of 2015 and now. Wow. And most of that is to service a lot of their debt that they had, right. and also they kind of triggered some of the covenants in their in their borrowing process. Right. Now, another thing to keep in mind here too is like the company didn't run out of money. That's not why they went into bankruptcy. What happened was they they had a certain amount of liquidity. They had to have a certain amount of things met through the deals with their creditors, and one of those things was a 358 million dollar sale of several of their assets to to Bellway Resource Partners. What happened, though, they made the deal. They had it all agreed to. It was supposed to be wrapped up by the end of the first quarter, and they were going to try to get you know, the liquidity from that. And then what happened is Bowie failed to be able to get out there and secure the financing for the purchase. Nobody wanted to back Bowie in this purchase. And so when that stalled and Peabody tried to buy them time, and then Peabody tried to talk to their creditors to try to get a little bit of a break and you know, a pause and, on when they were supposed to meet these covenants, they just failed to do so. So they had to the file. So keep in mind that the, the North property was still making money. And it wouldn't make business sense for Peabody to directly, you know, shut down that production immediately. I think what you're seeing now is they're probably, they've probably kind of figured out within their, to their, uh, their customers that they're not going to be able to continue to make margins on North Panama or Shell Mine. If they could, they would still be out there producing even if there was an oversupply. Right. Sort of a case of extended pretend meets the domino effect or something like that. Right. It's, they get caught in this really weird circle and, you know, kind of adding on to that is it's just really, expensive to close a coal mine. How much does it cost to close a coal mine? I mean, what's involved in that? Right. So a lot of it is you can't just, with North Antelope Shell, we're talking about a different situations as the surface mine, but it's not like you can go over and, and close the door, right? Right. You have to, if it's an underground mine, you have to seal it up. You have to ensure that you're not going to have a lot of shifting around. You have a lot of reclamation obligations, which gets talked about a lot in these bankruptcies. You know, if you look at Peabody's North Antelope Shell Mine. I mean, that is thousands of acres. It's a huge mine. Like, and, you, and that's a surface mine, right? Correct. In West Virginia and Wyoming, you go onto you know, Google Earth, and you don't have to zoom in past the state level before you can start seeing these mines from the sky. I mean, they're huge. And I try to imagine, like, if you have to close it down, and people don't understand sometimes, too, like, you see the kind of nastiness of, of these surface mines. But legally, those companies have to return those back to um, a reclaimed state, and there's plenty of argument and debate about you know whether that's adequate or not but i mean the fact is even you, know, if you don't think it's adequate it is expensive to to reclaim to any sort of state like it's a piece of property that large and when you're doing that you're not making money the way they kind of handle it right now in, in most cases as you're mining and you finish mining an area you'll reclaim it at the same time so you're using some of your revenue to, to put back into reclamation if all of a sudden you stop and you have no reclamation anymore and you're just spending money on reclaiming mine 
you begin losing a lot more money than you were if you were just selling kind of cheap coal with with a small margin. And that's why you see a lot of these companies really hesitant to shut any of the production. Uh-huh. So in the wake of the Peabody bankruptcy, you and a colleague calculated that about 44% of the coal produced in the U.S. came from a company that had filed for bankruptcy since 2012, and that about two-thirds of the coal produced in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, which is the nation's premier thermal coal region, came from coal companies who recently filed for bankruptcy. Should we be at all concerned about the future of coal supply, or will existing stockpiles and bankruptcy court workouts ensure that we continue to produce enough coal for our power plants? Yeah, I, I don't think you have to re- worry about you know there not being enough coal supply out there. As you point out, there's there's a lot of stockpiles built up out there. That's that, that would last a few months. I mean, we couldn't shut down all the mines and live off the stockpiles for you know any lengthy period of time. But the problem is, like like we mentioned before, when you go into bankruptcy, these coal mines aren't being shut down. A lot of them are continuing to operate while the uh, company either tries to reorganize and come out on the other side. And Peabody's trying to do that right now. Peabody's idea is not to you know, necessarily have a fire sale or to get rid of all these coal mines or to, to dump them and, and, and just disappear. I mean, they're really anticipating that they're going to be able to use Chapter 11 bankruptcy to restructure debt and operations. And as they put it, while riding out the storm that beset the coal industry – they are convinced that after some of this production comes off, they can continue to mine. And there's a lot of mines out there that aren't mining at the full capacity that they can mine at. If we were talking about coal generators going bankrupt, I think there would be reason to be worried about what would happen with electricity or are we going to have enough you know, to keep the grid stable. But I think as long as we're talking about coal bankruptcies, that's not really a challenge. If all of a sudden we started running out of coal or we didn't have – or we had some sort of coal shortage – well, a lot of these coal companies' problems disappear, right? Because all of a sudden, coal prices go back up. People start paying enough for coal that these coal companies can mine and make money. Right. So I don't think we're going to have any sort of supply issues. Maybe long-term, we might see a little bit more volatility if there's fewer companies competing. But the thing is, right now, one of the things that the coal industry touts is that it's you know cheap energy. But really, kind of being cheap energy is really what's sort of killing the industry right now. Right, exactly. So, I mean, one of the things that just constantly niggles at me is why these coal companies waited so long to take action and prevent this massive damage to their balance sheets and their employees and and in fact the regions where they operate i mean state revenues all that stuff why didn't they shut down the zombie mines that were operating at a loss and why didn't they attempt some sort of a job retraining or a business strategy pivot when it was been clear for literally decades that this business was in contraction Right, and, and I think, I mean, kind of the short answer to that is, is it's really hard to, to do a lot of those things. And to look a little bit closer, why, like, so as far as pivoting to another industry, Consol Energy did it, and I think it's, it's kind of yet to be seen yet, but I think a lot of people would say that it looks like they might have done that successfully in the pivot to natural gas. But then you also had Alpha try to do the same thing. They, they had a joint venture, I believe, with Rice Energy, where they were trying to get into natural gas as well. Problem was, it was a little bit too late. They got into so much debt with their, their met coal buy that they were they crashed before they were able to actually use that a lot, and I believe they ended up selling a lot of it for liquidity, and, and they're, they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do with some of their other natural gas properties in bankruptcy. But, I mean, I think a lot of these companies thought they were doing that. For example, I mean, I think all these metallurgical coal buys we were talking about earlier, I think that was really their honest attempt at like, diversifying. They thought that here's an industry that we're good at, it's what we, we know, and it's pretty much kind of the same kind of business model and business structures that we use for thermal coal. Maybe we can just pivot to metallurgical coal. And I think they didn't really 
maybe see that that wasn't so diverse as maybe they thought it was. <laughs> I mean, if you look, if you look back at, you know, they thought this was a safe bet. Again, it's it's kind of hard to. I, mean, I know you said that you know we've been declining for decades, and that's true of thermal coal. We saw that the coal sector was was shrinking, but there were plenty of people six, seven years ago, smart people that were, you know, looking at this and writing down even if they disagreed with the use of coal. I mean, I think most people saw profits in the future, at least, you know, trying to sell overseas and, and especially in the metallurgical coal markets. But obviously that, that didn't work out. And I think another thing that they really couldn't have anticipated was kind of just the, the success that the environmental movement was able to have, not just in like shutting down or sort of getting environmental regulations done, but also going to the state and city level and, and getting just, you know, plants actually shut down. And then also, one of the major problems now, too, is going to be their environmentalists are having a lot of success shutting down port capacity or at least delaying port capacity. And they're doing it in a way that, like, not necessarily is immediately affecting the, I think, global demand, but in a way that a lot of people are looking at that and not wanting to bet on coal again because they're seeing that there is a movement kind of moving against it. And they're seeing that they were, you know, successful before. But, I mean, I think that that these companies really thought what was going to happen is they were picking the assets. In some cases, it was Peabody got rid of Patriot, so that got them out of Appalachia. We had Foresight Energy start in Illinois. Illinois coal basins got you know better coal seams, long wall coal seam or long wall coal seams. Sorry, uh, long wall mineable coal seams. Peabody was betting on the large surface mines out west. Everybody thought that they'd found a model that was going to make them the coal company to invest in. Alpha was buying at Massey because they thought they were going to be the premier steelmaking coal provider. Mm. It just turns out that somehow none of those things were so, so in their minds, the writing was not on the wall. about Right. Coal. Well, I think they believed that there was probably some writing on the wall. And I think that they all thought that they, they could find their niche and that they would be able to survive in that niche. And it turns out that the, the market just was not good to any of them. <laughs> mm. They uh, Just about everything kind of went bust. And, and the job retraining for workers, I mean... I don't know. It's you. If you say like, look at though, like maybe Alpha again trying to buy up natural gas and they want to go to natural gas. They, that might have worked. The problem was is that by the time they realized that this was super necessary to to survive, they already had this huge kind of unserviceable debt load. So like nobody wanted to loan them money to go out and get into natural gas, you know. And they didn't have the liquidity that they needed to go out and like say buy into natural gas or to get into some other industry. And so, as far as like the retraining for workers, then it kind of becomes you know. I think that's more of something that community leaders probably wish they would have thought more ahead of time. But I think by the time these companies realized how bad it really was going to be for them specifically, and when I say them specifically, because a lot of these companies, even up until like two, three years ago, were saying, you know, we just need these other guys to go into bankruptcy and then we're going to be fine. And and then it turns out they're going into bankruptcy too. But yeah, and one of the, the challenges here is, like, is that there's just so much liability out there that I just don't. I don't know that they they can recover at this point to diversify, and I don't know that they could have done it, you know, even three four years ago. So you don't think like even the local politicians saw this situation coming and and wanted to do something about it before it became a crisis, right? And I think it depends on where you're talking about too. So I can't speak much to Wyoming, but say in West Virginia, there's a real challenge there, and one it's, it's got such a long history of the coal industry. It's a very influential political power in West Virginia. And I think, again, because they weren't convinced that this was kind of a, a secular decline, it was more of a secular decline, I think that they had a lot of people convinced that, that coal was maybe going to come back and that if you could kind of a their uh, phrasing, if you could just get 
the Obama administration off their backs, like everything was going to be fine. And I think a lot of politicians would believe that because they, you know, they grew up, they saw the mining industry go down and come back. But even then, I think there's some people that want to see uh, economic diversification in West Virginia. I mean, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me at a recent event I was at was one of the longtime economic development officials there in the region said, you know, we don't recruit extractive industry. They want other industry. They want other companies, other businesses to come through there. But without visiting West Virginia, it's kind of hard to explain. But the geography is basically like if someone took a piece of paper and just crumbled it up and then tried to lay it back out flat. You either have to build on top of a mountain, meaning you have to flatten it out. You have to build on the side of a mountain, which you know, is completely impractical. Or you have to build down in the valley in the floodplain. There's just not a whole lot of places for different businesses to go. And even if there is a kind of a flat place, you might be you know, two or three hours from an interstate. It's a real challenging place to try to do economic development. Hmm. And the problem is that whenever I think the coal mines always offered kind of a quick, easy solution, one of the kind of unsavory questions that as a West Virginian I hate to even really throw out there is that maybe there's there's populations too big in some of these areas. A lot of the towns exist because a coal mine was put there and there really wasn't anything else built. And you know, historically when those coal companies left, a lot of the town did too. It just seems like recently we have a lot of people kind of sitting around waiting for for something else and they're, they're not getting it and and I, I think that while you can put a little bit on on West Virginia politicians maybe a couple of years ago should have been either squirreling away tax money or you know at least coming up with new programs I think it's a really challenging there's a challenge stretch to be like they should have come up with this because I don't I don't know that the answer for what to put in some of those communities is maybe as as easy as some people would like it to be and I think that what we're seeing now is that people that are trying to to get on the ground and do this. They're working really hard and they're making some inroads and definitely having some success. But I think it's a really slow process and it's going to be several generations before we really see any kind of deep diversification in the state. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the questions that I that I really struggle with. In fact, I raised it in the very first episode of this podcast in the interview with Mike Grunwald talking about the so-called war on coal. I mean, people can blame the the Obama administration, but I mean, again, this is an industry that had been in contraction for decades. And I wondered how the people in coal country feel about the coal company executives and the elected officials who failed to take action in this long decline and just wound up leaving them high and dry. I mean, there are people there in West Virginia and, and elsewhere in Appalachia who are fourth and fifth generation coal miners. And I wonder if the politicians failed to take action because they thought that those people, their constituents, didn't want to hear anything except that they would fight for coal or if people actually wanted to transition away from being dependent on coal mining, but their leaders let them down. Obviously, there's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of folks who are really struggling financially now and seeing their long-held expectations, their hopes, their dreams crumble. You know, I wonder, as a West Virginia native, I mean, I assume you know or know of some of these multi-generational coal miners. I mean, how do they feel? Right. So that's a really complex question that I think a lot of people don't understand. One of the problems is even there's some resistance to some diversification of the economy. I don't mean that when you talk about I'm going to diversify the economy, people raise pitchforks. It's just that they're not necessarily as interested maybe because they've seen some of that happen. The problem, like in, for example, like if you shut down a mine in, in Logan County, it's not just that you're getting rid of a job and they need to find another job. A coal miner is someone that's graduated usually from high school and gone straight to a, a couple of weeks of training and now is capable of making, you know, 
$80,000 plus right out of high school. Hmm. And you're telling them to go find another job in another part of the economy. And like, for example, one of the big solutions is tourism in the service industry. You're not going to find a lot of jobs in the tourism service industry that are averaging $80,000 a year. These, True. these people are able to support their families. One of the stories I did when I, I used to work for the State Journal in Charleston, West Virginia, Central Appalachia is really one of the last places where there's a pocket of culture where it's still really common, highly common, for it to be a single-income household. I mean, that's the majority of households in Central Appalachia because they can do that. These coal miners can go and make between, you know, and $80,000 is the number that's tossed out there a lot, but it, some of them are higher, some of them are a little bit lower. They can afford to, to have this kind of traditional lifestyle that they're, that they're used to, and it's difficult to try to tell them you can replace that with something else. I've even gone down and, and spoke to some of these guys. I remember one, I asked them, you know, at this time the Marcellus Shale gas was, the field was just booming. And I said, you know, why don't you drive up there? He was talking about moving to Canada to go mine coal there. And I said, why don't you just move up to the northern part of the state and, and learn how to you know, work natural gas rigs? And not to simplify how easy it is to work on natural gas rigs. I think there's a whole set of training there as well. But, you know, I asked them, and he said, well, I can't make as much money in the natural gas field as I do in the coal mines. Hmm. And um, I don't know how true that is, but there's at least a perception that that these are the only jobs they can do and make this much money. And so you do. You see a ton of people moving. I know in Kentucky, a lot of people that live in the eastern coal fields, they're mining in central Appalachia. Well, when their mines shut down, you had a ton of people come over from western Kentucky, which is in the uh, Illinois basin where things are going a lot better, and they were recruiting these guys back over. And as you know, as much as they want to stay home and we all kind of like, you know, tend to love where we grow up, they were ready to move, not because they wanted to necessarily be exactly where they live, but they, they'd come accustomed to this coming job. And it's, it's something that pays very well. And mm. so I think that because of that, you kind of have a loyal voting base. Like if someone in the coal company tells these guys, you know, this is what's hurting our industry, we need to save it. I mean, I think they, they're a very active political base. And, and I, I think it would be hard to blame them when you know, they grew up accustomed to like, you know, a really well-paying job they could do in their community, not far from, from where they grew up, but also like basically kind of in the skill set that their father did. And it's, just a, it's a whole culture that I think is going to be really hard to change you know, with politically. It's going to take, as I said before, generations before this kind of sinks in. So it doesn't sound like they're really the rank-and-file coal worker isn't particularly blaming coal companies or their elected officials for not anticipating this change and trying to do something about it. I mean, everybody just kind of wanted to hold on to what they had. Right. Well, and I would say that, like, with obviously speaking in generalities about these people are kind of kind of difficult. Well, sure. A great example is there's a um, former coal miner named Gary Bentley. I spoke with him recently. He's from Kentucky. But he now works, I believe, at Georgia Pacific Corps. So he's he started coal mining right after he graduated high school. Um, he's actually writing a lot of stories about it. They're, some of them are pretty funny about some of the, the kind of big burly guys, as he described them, kind of like teaching him how to mine. But, I mean, he said that you know he had a daughter, and he realized that money wasn't the most important thing anymore, and that he wanted a job that he knew he could come home from. He's told me that he's kind of frustrated with these politicians. I mean, one of the things he told me, I think, was, you know, politicians are screaming, we're bringing coal jobs back. He told me that he thinks that's a false hope that they're feeding people, but that these people believe it what they, when they say it. So they fight hard for it because they want those jobs and, you know, they need them in that area. And the way he said it to me, he said that people are afraid to look at the truth that things are going to change, or, you know, that they're not going to have these jobs. But, I mean, one of the things that he points out that's just an excellent point that I can't get over enough, especially kind of like, you know, backing my, my West Virginia people here for a minute, but he, uh, he says he feels like coal miners could do anything. They are really smart people. I mean, they're not in there with pickaxes 
being in the coal. I mean, you've got people that are electricians. They, you know, they, they might have like lots of experience working machinery. They're really, they're talented workers and they're usually hard workers, you know, that are going in there and pulling really long shifts. And I've, I've been in a coal mine. It's not a comfortable place to stand and they're doing it for hours on the end of the day. I can't even imagine it. It's like he said, I think that there is just kind of a, a fear of change in, in, in those areas and, and it's just, even I think if they want to believe that it's that things are changing, it's kind of hard to accept. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a sort of a truism across the entire spectrum of energy transition, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I mean, I think you'll you're always going to see that, like in any kind of any kind of community where these people are used to these things. I and mean, I think that's the situation with, if you're talking about you know, coal plant workers or natural gas field workers, oil workers. It's, it's all kind of the same. Sure. On a slightly different subject, Robert Murray, the CEO of Murray Energy, is arguably the most politically outspoken and probably the most reviled coal company executive in America. Murray Energy is the largest privately owned coal mining company in the country. Uh, it's been under fire for years for safety violations and various political activities. And Mr. Murray recently made news by saying that the companies that have recently gone bankrupt should just go away and not be allowed to come out of bankruptcy relieved of their debts and get back to work because there's just too much supply and the industry needs to cut supply in order to get back into balance with supply and demand and get prices back up and be able to operate profitably. And he actually said these zombie mines are chasing the ghosts of past coal markets. And there's a nice line you had in one of your pieces there. I guess that makes sense, but I wonder if he would be saying that if it were his company that were going through a bankruptcy proceeding right now. Right. Fair question. And, and yeah, he's, um, he's always one of our more colorful speakers. I like to go listen to him talk. And he definitely has you know, critics and, and detractors across the industry and won't debate the individual points of some of those. But I mean, I would also point out that on on the other hand, someone in his defense, that he is well-respected in business circles in the coal world because he has made a couple of different decisions than others had. And um, one of the things he told me in, in a recent interview that I did with him personally is that while he wanted those mines to go away, he doesn't think it's going to happen. I mean, he told me, I was like, I said, I said okay, so what's it going to take for these mines to close down after you said, you said that they, were, they need to close down? And what he told me is it's a myth. He says it costs too much to close it down. And these companies have to deal with their surety performance balance. There's reclamation liabilities. He said that it's too expensive to really see all that be done. And then another wonderful quote from him is that all the bankruptcies that are happening, and he's out here trying to get lenders to back him and, and to uh, help him kind of you know, back his liabilities. And he said that everybody else is dragging him into this bankruptcy sewer. And I think that what you have to understand about Murray's business model is that he it should have worked really, really well in this market. And if you didn't have all these companies, would because it, no, it's, it's, it's hard to actually tell how Murray Energy is performing as a company. It's private. We have no public financial details of how they're doing. Based on some recent acquisition activity from I think, two years back, kind of suggests maybe they, they, at least they were doing well then. It seems like they're not doing terribly bad now, although they are starting to cut production. But I think the thing to keep in mind is he had a completely different model when he, when he set up his coal companies. He, he built an empire of mines that were centered in northern Appalachia, one of the more productive regions going right now. And, and one of the other advantages that it has is like so it's got the, the proximity advantage of the central Appalachia to you know big markets like you know the Northeast, but also he only bought highly productive long wall coal mines. He has something called the concentric ellipse or concentric circle strategy that he uses, where like he makes sure that all of his mines are located near power plants that have a transportation system that works. And then also he didn't jump into this met bet frenzy that's kind of killing all the other coal companies. 
So, I mean, I think part of the reason he's, he's maybe a little bit bitter towards some of these companies that are still open is that, you know, he was cautious. He was selective about what he was doing. He didn't necessarily get greedy and go out and buy a bunch of net coal mines. Granted, he did buy a bunch of Consol Energies along well mines, but those are all you know, seemingly doing pretty well. And one of the things he told me, though, is that you know, the crisis isn't even here yet because, like, he's, he's actually in West Virginia and he's telling them, you know, people in West Virginia that they, they need to fight back against these people that are that are filing for bankruptcy and not claiming all their liabilities with it. He said that you need to charge them more. He told me the judges weren't forcing them to pay enough of their liabilities. And that's because basically what he, the way he sees it is like these guys went out and made big bets and now state federal government's going to cover it. And he didn't make the bet. And now, you know, he's kind of suffering from, from a kind of really collective market sentiment that's against coal. Right. And so that's, the, I think, really maybe one of the biggest important questions that we have here. I mean, what will happen to all these liabilities that these companies are leaving behind that are, that are going bankrupt? I mean, as, as Mr. Murray pointed out, bankruptcy courts typically relieve the petitioner of its obligations to employees, lenders, shareholders, and the environment. I mean, everybody. So while those of us who are advocate transition away from coal have something to celebrate with the industry being in decline, shouldn't we also be concerned about the pension and healthcare obligations of the present and past employees of these companies? And, and what about all the ruined landscapes that it's their responsibility to restore after the mines close, the waste products they're leaving behind, and so on? I mean, it seems to me that all of that is just likely to get shoved onto taxpayers like it always does, following the old saw, privatize the profits and socialize the losses. Right. And so I think that, that's kind of a great mystery everyone's trying to answer that's covering the coal space right now. There's been a couple different proposals, but to kind of put it in perspective, one of the, the source of this phrase, zombie mines, or at least kind of as it's been properly used within the industry in the past couple of months, and where Murray kind of got to start from was it's this uh, report by a McKinsey and company. And what they were looking at there was that they said that in 2020, that even if they, they were able to do a round of capacity cuts that reduced production by 225 million tons, the industry that survived would carry liabilities of about 70 billion but only be able to service about $25 billion worth of those liabilities. Wow. Meaning there's about $45 billion that they just cannot financially cover. And that's in a optimistic scenario. <laughs> and so we don't know what that means yet. A couple different things. One is sometimes a liability, a billion dollar liability, for example, let's just take a chunk and say it's a billion dollar liability. That might not actually cost a billion dollars. When people make these, these assumptions, these calculations, it's always kind of like if Peabody shut down North Antelope Mine right now, what would it cost for the state to bring in somebody to clean it up? Right. That liability is not quite what they actually pay when the coal company itself is doing it with their own machinery, sure. their own workers. Yeah. So it's probably a little bit smaller than maybe those numbers, and that might be a little bit bigger. But I think there's a lot of really interesting kind of things that are being looked at on how to handle this, right? So like Alpha right now, they're they're creating two entities out of bankruptcy. There's one that's kind of their awesome lines, the ones that they probably should have focused on to begin with. And they're going to make a company that is just like a company like Alpha, but like much, much smaller. The other entity that they're trying to form, if the bankruptcy court allows it, is a group that's of mines that is basically just going to be focusing on mining only at the rate and um, kind of like as the market allows them to use that revenue just to reclaim that mine. This company's the second entity, not going to be dedicated to profiting. They're mostly dedicated to shutting down these mines and getting them reclaimed without leaving any liability behind. You have another kind of concept with the Virginia Conservation Legacy Fund. Basically, they've gone out and bought a lot of coal properties that have been bankruptcy. It's a guy out of Virginia who um, 
was an environmentalist that actually kind of butted heads with uh, coal magnate Jim Justice there for a little bit. That his idea was to buy this coal, plant trees, or do any kind of other kind of environmental projects he can do, so he can pair carbon credits with this coal that he sells. The idea there being that you know, he can mitigate climate change while still selling coal by finding other ways to, re- to offset the carbon. But that's a really interesting thing that we're still trying to figure exactly how that works because you know, there is no market for him to trade those CO2 credits right, right now. And maybe, depending on how the clean power plant works, that market will open up. And then also, interestingly enough, that legacy fund got involved with metallurgical coal and how that actually works with carbon credits is, is um, something they haven't explained fully yet either. But the idea there, though, is like they're planning on figuring out something for those liabilities. And one of the kind of interesting ideas, and to go back to our economic diversification a little bit more, this touches on that, is that they're looking at the Hobbit mine site right outside of Charleston, West Virginia. It's not far at all. It's a huge mine site. And Virginia Conservation Legacy Fund wants to pair with the state of West Virginia. And Governor Robert Tomlin mentioned this in the state of the state address. The idea is to reclaim that mine property, but then also to set up basically a business park on it. And their idea is like you know, anything from one acre to several hundred or thousands of acres of property, depending on you know what you're trying to put up there. You can build either your you know industrial you know, manufacturing site or you can you know, build a warehouse or whatever you think is appropriate. So they're going to try to, to redo some of that, which would mean that like maybe some state funds end up going into that through economic development credits that might be used somewhere else. Or um, and DCLF might take some interest in that. Again, we're, it's good to see how that works. But I think you're somewhat correct in that we're probably going to see at least some of the liabilities fall to state and federal entities and then eventually the taxpayer. I mean, unfortunately, there's the legal system doesn't allow a lot of options here, particularly the bankruptcy courts. They're, they kind of favor a company that comes into bankruptcy coming out on the other side or being sold like in a way that the shareholders, or sorry, stakeholders, get value out of it. So I think at this point, a lot of the the part, of, the biggest part of the conversation is that state and federal officials are looking at how not to let this happen again, and how to maybe maximize what they can get out of it. And unfortunately, kind of sadly, I think that might be some of the, probably the best that we might be able to get out of this um, in places like West Virginia and Kentucky. But I think uh, a lot of that's kind of going to be depending on, on what kind of creative solutions we see both out of state federal officials and, and maybe even the coal companies themselves. So a lot of short-term reclamation jobs and that kind of thing, maybe. Yeah, and that's something that as long as they have the cash to do it, the coal companies can do some of that. But yeah, I mean, there's there should be plenty of reclamation work out there to do. And it's just a matter of who's going to pay for that. But I mean, I think arguably, like, if the way things are going now, especially the way kind of federal policy is treating coal. And that's another thing to keep in mind I should have mentioned before, too, is that there are federal programs out there that people are trying to to get out there to help these people. There's Obama's Power Plus plan. You have the Reclaim Act that a bipartisan group of lawmakers are looking at. And the Reclaim Act essentially just pumps several million dollars a year from the Abandoned Mine Reclamation Fund to get that in there really quickly to help reclaim some of these sites with the priority of putting something that's economically viable in its place. So Right. And so, yeah, ultimately you need new industries, you need more longer term jobs. And and that was something I wanted to talk about next because you'd written recently a very interesting three-part series titled Replacing Coal, 
which stemmed from a conference on building a resilient West Virginia. And you talked to a number of people who are trying to figure out how to create new jobs outside the coal industry and attract new industries. Do you think those people are getting actual traction amongst rank and file former workers in the coal industry and amongst the industries that they're trying to bring into West Virginia? What's the mood like in coal country? Are people finding things to be optimistic about or are they just brooding over their losses or leaving? You have some people leaving. If you look in, I believe the Associated Press or local outlet recently reported, there was a ton of people leaving these coal-filled counties. But I think you've also got like a kind of a, a mixed bag of how people are, are responding to this. I mean, there's there's young people that are leaving. You know, they're going off to college. They're finding other jobs. And you've got young people that are staying there. They're trying to create something. There were two young people there that were with an economic development group, and they were um, working with them on, I believe, the Fresh Appalachia and also the Coalfield Development Corps. They seem really excited about what they're doing. You know, they're out there building houses or reclaiming furniture. And then, you know, the Refresh Appalachia movement's looking at, you know, putting it like farms and and, and kind of building an agriculture community in the, in the state. There's all kinds of things out there that I think are really creative and interesting. One that surprised me is there's a reclaimed mine site in Kentucky I visited about a year or two ago. And they basically had this really large cattle farm out there in this large flat area. And it, it looked a lot like Texas, really, where they're at. Hmm. And that's basically what the idea was. that People were sending cattle from Texas to come back here on this farm and to be grazed and all that. And you could see the coal mine off in the distance where they were still working on it because they were kind of doing it in pieces. But there's lots of really interesting projects like that. You've got golf courses being put on, on coal mines. And obviously a golf course doesn't make a whole lot of jobs, but there's a lot of different things out there. And I think that there are a lot of people that are excited about it. And one of the things I, that I, I've not seen as much in other states is that a lot of people that live in West Virginia really, really love living in West Virginia. Hmm. They want to stay there. They want to be there if they can. But you do have a lot of people, too, that are, you know, they say, I want to do X job and I have to leave. And one of the things that I think that a lot of people are trying to, to push out, especially the older people that, are, that, that have already kind of established themselves in the community and don't want to see the younger people leave, you know, what they're saying is, like, we can't let people believe your, your option is coal miner, teacher, or nurse. You know, like, you have, you can go out there and, and do a whole lot of things in the community and... What we're starting to see now, too, is like, and you might have heard of this interesting kind of concept, is there's a, a project where they're, they're teaching coal miners how to code. There's a lot of jobs like that where you don't have to be necessarily in the, the area where the business is based. You can work remotely. Sure. And this is kind of a new concept. I, I think probably got ignored, and it's too bad that it wasn't looked at earlier. This notion that instead of trying to educate the workforce, because what you do is you educate the workforce to, to be computer programmers, and there's no... West Virginia is not Silicon Valley at the moment. They move. Or like you train them to do like electrical work. Well, if the mines are shut down and there's no equipment to run, they go and they do the electrical work somewhere else. I think the idea that they're going here now, though, which is really interesting, is teaching them to do things where they can do that work from home. And so you're basically taking all these people and giving them skills and building a workforce first. And now once you have like an educated workforce that has like a certain set of skills, now it's a little bit more easy to bring in alternative industries. It's really hard to go to a tech company and say, hey, why don't you come work in Charleston, West Virginia, or, or come to you know, Beckley, West Virginia, and we'll go out there and do a program where we train a workforce for you. you know, no company wants to do that and risk that. West Virginia, unfortunately, this is one of the things that was said at the conference, it doesn't look good on paper. Statistically, the, the test scores aren't always great. Like You have a, a lot of the people that do end up with, with higher education end up leaving the state, but they're, they're hard workers, and I think that 
that's something that's kind of difficult to quantify. So I believe we are taking a really important step now where in the state they're starting to look at having a workforce and then bringing that to them. And, and this, you know, the Internet age is making that a lot easier. But I think overall there is a kind of genuine hope for the state, even if it is maybe going a little bit slower than a lot of people would like to see economic diversification happen. I mean, I really think they'll figure it out. One of the other challenges here is this. I don't think, at least I can, maybe you can, I can't think of a great example of when this has happened before. When, sure, industries have disappeared, but I don't know how many of them have been this geographically concentrated mm -hmm. and in areas where there was nothing else. You know, like yeah. when we saw, you know, when we saw steel decline, well, those were in, like in huge cities, like or at least cities kind of on the river. And there were other kind of industries around it, and maybe that city emptied out and spread out, but it's kind of hard to, I think, imagine seeing something like what we're seeing in West Virginia or Kentucky right now where, I mean, whole swaths. If, you, if you're looking at basically everything, the whole southern part of West Virginia that almost had nothing but coal and coal-related industry, and now they're trying to figure out what they can put there instead. And um, it's a real challenge, but again, I, I, would, I would reiterate, I think a lot of people are somewhat optimistic about what can be done now. Yeah, interesting. I try to think about where this is all going. You know, what's what's the outlook? And you and your colleagues at S and P Global Market Intelligence published a huge, fourteen part series on the future of coal last December, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But I thought it was a really excellent and a great way for people to get up to speed on the subject. So, based on what you gathered for that series, what's your view on the future of coal and maybe the future of baseload power more generally? Again, everything can change. I know a lot of Unfortunately, I've watched a lot of people be wrong when I go back and read through all these things and prepare these reports. And I'm afraid of being one of those people, but... Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's <laughs> never happened to me. <laughs> well, I think that you're going to see... So, what uh, the majority of the predictions that I'm seeing now these days for coal is I think this year is going to be further decline. I think that as far as 2016 goes, you could not have more consensus from everybody that coal production is going to keep going way down. We just recently got our 2015 numbers in for coal all compiled and everything, and, and some of that numbers have been out there for a while. But looking at it now, I mean, coal's way down, and it's particularly down in, in some of these regions we've been talking about, like Central Appalachia. I think that most people believe Central Appalachia's kind of stuck where it's at. It's going to continue to get worse a little bit longer, but basically there's always going to be a little bit of a, not always, but for a long time there's going to be a little bit of a market for metallurgical coal until we find a better way to make steel. So in that way, Central Appalachia has a little bit to be kind of you know, excited about. They can, they can always kind of count on a little bit of that. But that's a very small kind of portion of what's going on there in the state. But I think thermal coal, it just, right now, all, all projections and modeling that we see that's only based on kind of what the knowns, what we already know, like the clean power plan, you know, what natural gas prices might do, all of that looks either flat for coal or coal declining slowly. But we've seen those kind of projections and lines before. And I think they all rely on nothing nothing happening, you know, no innovation. But we, we don't expect, you know, the Sierra Club finds another way to sue a coal plant and shut it down. Or we don't expect, you know, that we um, we advance battery technology to the point where you know, solar or wind's a more viable option. Like all all these kind of assume that innovation's not gonna happen. There's very little on the coal upside. Unless something amazing happens with carbon capture technology that we're not anticipating. I think we almost certainly see coal continue to slide downward. Now on the upside, I think that I think analysts also somewhat have it right. I think a lot of people think that 
Cornish is going to go bust and disappear. I don't think that's going to happen, and I, I think most reasonable people would agree that it's going to be a while. But I think that there will be companies that you know you'll be able to see value in later. Somebody's going to survive this, and they'll continue to make coal. They'll probably make less coal than they are now, but they'll be able to profit in some way. But as far as I think, kind of the big picture, I think if you look out far enough, you always kind of see coal eventually going away, right? It's just a matter of how far you have to look out. And I think that it's probably further away than a lot of maybe environmentalists think, but it's also probably a lot closer than a lot of coal companies think. Right. And so key to that outlook is understanding the trajectory of natural gas, because that's really the main thing that killed coal. And certainly flat to declining electricity demand, as I talked about earlier, which is partly due to improving efficiency, is part of that picture, as is the rapid rise of wind and solar generators. But cheap natural gas, from mainly from fracking, shale gas formations, was clearly the biggest factor in the demise of coal. And now gas production in the U.S. has finally started to fall in recent months as a consequence of the collapse in oil prices and the toll that it's taken on new drilling in, in oil, in oil and natural gas. So it seems that the thing that really killed coal is itself now in peril, actually. And both the coal and the shale gas industries, as you mentioned earlier, have taken on vast amounts of debt to try to stay afloat over the past couple of years, debt that is now getting discounted and downgraded. So it seems that both industries are really going to blow a hole in a lot of investors' wallets and that neither of them are really standing on firm ground. And this concerns me because it would be far better if we could just have an orderly transition off of coal and then off of gas in a, in a deliberate energy transition plan kind of way than if these massive industries just keel over due to an, uh, you know, an overhang of debt or whatever before renewables are ready to take over for them. What are your thoughts about the fiscal sustainability of these industries? Right. So, I mean, I think you, so you're seeing the natural gas kind of do it there. They're um, kind of go the way of coal at the moment. But I think one of the important things here, too, is so because all these, these people are losing money, and it's mostly investors, it's shareholders, and creditors, all that. These companies, again, are still producing, like just like the gas companies are still producing, the coal companies are still producing. And some of that production will come off and kind of right size it goes through. So, I mean, I don't think that we're, we're not threatening the grid necessarily because of these bankruptcies. And are lots of investors losing lots of money? Yes. Are we like putting a lot of kind of like you know, environmental risks out there? Definitely. But I mean, I think that one of the keys here too is that even though natural gas might follow coal, I think it'll do so financially and not necessarily the production pathway that it took. Because what's happening now is like what or what happened in the past couple of years, the administration was really able to kind of look at what gas was doing to coal. And as it was declining, they were able to put regulations in place that, sure, they were just following the natural trajectory, right? They, like they, natural gas kind of pushed coal out of the room. Well, I think in a lot of ways, from coal leasing regulations to the clean power plant and mats, EPA has kind of been running behind natural gas and locking the doors. Coal's pushed out. You know, it's it can't come back now because like, once these regulations get in place, and I think in a lot of ways it's going to be easy because of natural gas. So while natural gas might struggle. Financially, I think that it's still going to probably be a go-to fuel for a long time. I mean, whether it become, whether it's as cheap a fuel as it is now might be different. But I think that right now coal and natural gas kind of pressure each other somewhat equally, right? Well, not equally. Natural gas is probably pushing the coal a whole lot harder. But I think you're eventually going to see where coal is going to have a harder and harder time pushing back and where you might actually see enough rise in natural gas price that those natural gas producers can compete and 
my expertise is not necessarily with those companies, so I might be out of turn there. But I think that you will see natural gasps at some point, maybe find some sort of stabilization. But most of the analysts that we're seeing now are saying they don't see a huge natural gas price return um, this year, meaning more coals kind of get locked out of the market. So I, I do think it's, it's somewhat of a kind of a risky proposition to see these two, but they've also got a long history of this. And I think a lot of people forget even back to 2001 and, and earlier, coal did have a series of bankruptcies. You know, they kind of restructured and, and came out new as they are now. I wasn't covering the industry at the time, but you know, bankruptcy is not foreign to the, the industry. And natural gas has had its up and downs before as well. I think that, like, like I said before, renewables are slowly capturing that market as, as that disappears. And I don't know that there's going to be a, um, a sort of natural transition like you talk about without some sort of policy intervention. I don't think you're going to see these companies do it themselves. Although, to be fair, uh, we're, we're hearing a lot more utilities interested in this kind of thing. They're more interested in, you know, how can we be smarter about how we put the grid out there or how can we, you know, plan for 20 years instead of planning to make a, a profit every quarter. So I, I, I do think that we are going to see kind of a massive change in how people think about energy. It's just going to be kind of a matter of you know, what, who's the next administration that's going to be in place, how that's going to happen. You know, um, Is there a major kind of event that allows coal or natural gas to be more competitive than it is now? For example, say if, the, if something were to happen tomorrow where we could suddenly export a lot of natural gas or if we discover something about natural gas that makes us not want to burn it anymore or it's some sort of emergency where we don't burn it anymore, well, then all of a sudden coal's got like a price advantage and we kind of slow down that decline in coal. I think Again, we have a long-term trajectory away from probably both of those things, but a lot's going to depend on kind of factors that are really hard to foresee in the next couple of months. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a fair perspective. You know, probably no reason to worry about things suddenly falling over. It's more of a matter of how is it going to get worked out over time. Right, and I think of both, well, more so coal. I think we saw a lot of kind of the sky will fall if this happens, you know, or the price is going to shoot up. Right. The problem is now that we're still hearing that argument. I, the problem is that we've seen coal fall from almost 50% of the electrical generation down to like you know close to a third of electrical generation in the US, and we haven't seen massive increases in price. You know, so it's kind of hard to make that argument. And a lot of that is because natural gas, and and in part because natural gas is taking its place and not making a profit while it's doing it. I don't think we're always going to have an industry willing to continue to take a loss for several months in a row. Yeah, and that, that's really the big question is how is how is the financial industry what's their next move going to be? You know, how are they going to deal with this stuff if it continues to stay low and the value of of their bonds continues to fall and and so on. I mean, there's there's going to be a limit to which they're going to say, "You know what? We're not going to give you guys any more debt and go sort it out." Right, and I think we're seeing that already in the coal sector. One of our analysts with uh, S&P recently said that it was, you know, basically the door's shut on the credit market for, for the coal industry. Mm. Even if you're a viable producer or you're, you know, that, that hasn't gone out. And there's, there's some producers out there that aren't doing horribly. I mean, you look at like Alliance Resource Partners, Cloud Peak, they're both doing fairly well given the market that they're in. But I think even they would have a hard time right now going out and taking a loan to buy more coal because not only because they're making loss and the market's oversupplied, the market should in theory correct itself. But I think the problem is everybody's got this there's so much uncertainty around coal that the credit market's already closed to them and i don't know that you're going to see that with natural gas quite as quickly 
Well, actually, you know, I, I hear plenty of stories about how the credit markets are drying up for shale gas and for tight oil as well. I mean, yeah, and I, I mean, I can see that. I think that would de- that definitely makes sense that it would be. I just wonder if there's as, maybe as permanent as coals. I can almost see it's going to be really difficult even in the future for coal to ever kind of you know win favor back over mm. with a creditor. Whereas I could see, depending on you know what happens in the market, I could see natural gas again maybe one day being you know, something that people think they can make some money in. But definitely, I mean, I think coals going to have a hard hard sell really anytime in near medium or long term. Well, fair enough. Well, Taylor, thanks so much. I mean, this has really been an interesting conversation. You certainly know your stuff when it comes to coal. <laughs> thank you very much. And I had a good time talking. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was Taylor Kierkendall, coal reporter for S&P Global Market Intelligence, based in Charlottesville, Virginia. The project of energy transition, as difficult as it is, seems simple compared to the specific challenges involved in transitioning a place, coal country, to a new economy. There are no simple or straightforward answers, and how they do it, and how well they do it, remains to be seen. No doubt the people of coal country are creative and have the courage to try something new. But what are their real options, especially if they're trying to replace good incomes? And what of reclaiming the ruined mining lands? Will that burden fall on the taxpayer? As Taylor pointed out, there could be $45 billion in uncovered liabilities hanging out there. That's no small change, and it was never priced in to coal's cheap power prices. Meanwhile, as has been reported on this show and elsewhere, coal company executives continued to pay themselves fat bonuses even as they walked away from all this wreckage. It's a complex story, and the answers are anything but clear. But it seems to me that there's a giant moral failure at the heart of coal's collapse, one that the regulations on coal miners never really protected against, one that the bankruptcy courts were never designed to address, one that beggars the interests of the American people for the sake of a short-term profit, and one that, rather than pointing toward a smooth and deliberate transition path, instead just left a big hole, a hole that was quickly filled up by debt-fueled shale gas drilling, which in itself could be a major liability in the long run. But no one seems to be guiding us through these troubled waters. We can all hope that shale gas holds up for another few decades to smooth over the supply side of electricity, and that somehow all the liabilities that coal is leaving behind get paid, and that renewables continue their rapid growth and give us a new path just in time. And certainly, we should celebrate the death of public enemy number one in climate change. But I have to wonder if the collapse of coal is going to expose a tragic flaw in laissez-faire economics and make us wish, a decade or two from now, that we've been willing to put a stronger hand on the tiller. Then the coal company came with the world's largest shovel And they tortured the timber and stripped all the land Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken Then they rode it all down as the progress of man And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away Do you enjoy the Energy Transition Show enough to buy me a beer once a month as a way of saying thanks? If so, since it's a little impractical for all of you to actually physically buy me a beer in person, although I would love that, 
then would you consider paying $5 a month for a subscription to this show? We aim to produce a very high-quality product, and it takes a good deal of time and effort to do that. At some point, perhaps later this fall, we will be looking to start bringing in revenue in order to make all this effort sustainable and keep putting out a quality product. And we'd rather do that on a subscription basis, if possible, than subject our listeners to more bloody advertising. So, if you value this show enough to pay $5 a month for it, which would give you access to two full episodes per month, plus some other goodies, we'd like to hear from you. Or if you have other price points in mind or other ideas, we'd like to hear those too. You can send us a note using the comment form at the bottom of each episode's page, or just drop me an email to chris at energytransitionshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Regular listeners may recall from our discussion on China in episode 14 that a good deal of China's wind and solar generation is actually being curtailed, that is, thrown away. That discussion mainly concerned a lack of offtake capacity in the transmission grid, which, as I noted in the news segment of episode 15, is now beginning to be corrected. Now, a new report from the Paulson Institute points out another aspect of the problem. 15% of the energy from China's wind capacity and 12% of the energy from its solar were wasted in 2015 because economic incentives favor using energy from coal plants, even when low-cost wind or solar is available. The report says that the wind and solar energy wasted in China in 2015 was enough to power a large city like Shanghai or Beijing for several months, and that the curtailment from 2011 to 2015 represents a cost to the economy of around $7.7 billion. Massive. So the country now has a new policy to correct that, requiring coal plant owners to pay wind and solar plant owners whose energy is curtailed. A bold move that's simultaneously outside the box and also eminently sensible. After all, curtailing coal power is and should be the objective here. And as a study by German grid engineers some years ago showed, so-called baseload power from big coal and nuclear plants is fundamentally incompatible with variable renewable power. And so as energy transition proceeds, it will be baseload power that has to get pushed out. Item 2. China announced another plan to help stop the curtailment of wind and solar generation, storage. The China Energy Storage Alliance, an industry body, expects China's storage capacity to jump from just 105 megawatts today to 14.5 gigawatts by 2020. And that's not counting pumped hydro. Presumably, they'll be using lithium-ion batteries, but the details remain to be seen. International companies involved in providing energy storage technology to China include ABB and TUV Rhineland, while domestic players include Soaring Electric, Sifan Automation, and joint ventures such as SunGrow Samsung's SDI, Energy Storage Power Supply Company. Item 3. Maybe India should follow suit. The Indian state of Karnataka, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is planning to increase its solar energy target to 6 gigawatts, up from the 2 gigawatt target set in 2014. The move is designed to be in line with India's renewable purchase obligation target, which was recently raised to 8%, meaning that the country intends to get 8% of its electricity from solar by 2020. Unfortunately, according to a consultant for Bridge to India, Karnataka is one of the Indian states likely to see curtailment of solar power in the near future due to grid congestion, especially in high renewable penetration areas. Item 4. 
Step aside, Energiewende. The world has a new German word to learn. Effenzins offensive, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> Under this new program, Germany will spend 17 billion euros, or 19.4 billion dollars, over the next five years to boost energy efficiency as a part of its plan to cut energy consumption in half by 2050. The campaign will include a competitive offer for the cheapest efficiency measures, a promotion for smart meters, and investments in waste heat recovery and combined heat and power plants. This is all very much in keeping with the efficiency projects we discussed in episode 16. As the German Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy put it, their goal is to find, quote, the lowest possible energy consumption and meet the remaining demand with renewable energy, end quote, which is exactly the right objective for energy transition. I haven't been able to determine if the campaign will use the market-based approach for efficiency improvements that we discussed in episode 16, but it will be worth watching to see how well the program works. $19.4 billion is about half a percent of Germany's GDP. The equivalent percentage of the U.S. GDP would be about $87 billion. Over the same five years, that would be about $17.5 billion a year. And what are we actually spending on efficiency? According to a 2013 report by Galen Barbos of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, under $5 billion a year in 2010, which could double to under $10 billion by 2025. So, yeah. Germany is spending about three times as much as we are on improving their energy efficiency, and you can bet that it will be money well spent. And that brings us to our final item, really two items, which are also about Germany. The first was a story in Recharge News citing a report by RWTH Aachen University and the ISEA Institute, which said that almost half of the small solar systems installed in Germany last year included a storage system, and that in the fourth quarter of last year, 90% of those storage systems used lithium-ion batteries, up from about a 50% share in mid-2014. An incentive scheme that began in March is credited with being partly responsible for the surge in storage installations. Storage system prices are typically around 1,000 to 1,200 euros per kilowatt hour of capacity, and the incentive started at 500 euros per kilowatt of capacity. Now, why the incentive is based on kilowatts and the cost is measured in kilowatt hours, the article didn't say. But overall, the report says that more than 34,000 solar storage systems were installed between May 2013 and January 2016 with a combined capacity of more than 200 megawatts, which is significant. But another upcoming study written up in Green Tech Media, which was funded by the Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy, has found that grid scale and behind-the-meter batteries are insufficient to meet Germany's energy needs. It suggested that the total market for primary frequency control in Germany is less than 600 megawatts, and that the batteries are less economically viable than most analysts think. The report will say that for the purposes of managing large amounts of renewable energy and balancing the German grid, residential and industrial power-to-heat systems, demand response, and electric vehicles will be the best tools. Naturally, we'll link to both of those reports in the show notes. Now, these reports may sound contradictory. Behind-the-meter batteries are taking off in Germany. Behind-the-meter batteries can't meet Germany's energy needs. But they really aren't. They're just different contexts. People with rooftop solar systems in Germany who decide to add some battery backup probably aren't doing so because they want to participate in the frequency response market. And it's probably quite correct to say that balancing large amounts of renewables on the German grid will require flexible loads measured in gigawatts, not megawatts. 
and that EVs and demand response will be key players there. So the main point here isn't really about what batteries can or can't do. It's simply to say that all of the above are important contributors to helping Germany obtain a resilient grid with a large share of renewables. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.